Well, it's good to be back with you again this evening. It's a joy uh, to open the Word with you. Uh, I was just over at the home visiting uh, Mae Carpenter, and she told me I was speaking at the watch night service tonight. Uh, so we will, uh, we will be awaiting the Lord's return, uh, perhaps even as we're studying His Word. We were talking this morning about uh, it being the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's, uh, Christmas looking back on the Incarnation, New Year's looking forward to some resolutions that we might have of things that are important uh, to concentrate on in this uh, coming year, and we were looking at the implications of the Incarnation, found uh, primarily in chapter 2 of Philippians, uh, but also spread throughout the entire book. And this evening, I'd like to take us to the fourth chapter of Philippians, to another section, I think, uh, that has uh, two very important uh, New Year's resolutions for us, one as it regards worry and the other as it regards finances. And for some of us, that might find we might find ourselves in the same sentence, uh, being worried about our finances. And you will sense uh, that the Apostle Paul, uh, who opened the book, uh, wondering whether or not uh, he would survive uh, Caesar's inquisition of him, uh, the real possibility that he might be executed, uh, was saying, I'm not even worried about it because, frankly, to go to be with the Lord is better. And he says, actually, I'm somewhat torn. I feel like uh, you need more help, and you, I feel like I should stay and be a help to you. But on the other hand, I would love to go home to be with the Lord. He even straight out says, I don't know which to choose. Well, let's hope uh, you're not quite to that point yet and, and you're uh, very excited about uh, staying among us and are longing for more opportunity to serve the Lord, but also eagerly waiting uh, for the Lord's imminent return. And he has this cheerful attitude all the way through the book. Now, I wasn't showing you much of the cheerful sections this morning, but we'll open with the cheerful section tonight. We are in Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And if there was a singular word uh, that appears more times than any other in this book, uh, it is the concept of joy or rejoice. Uh, and it is because Paul wants them, as they are orienting themselves to the proper Christian philosophical uh, viewpoint as to how uh, to view what's happening in their lives, uh, he says the most important thing is, us, is for us to maintain our joy in the Lord. We might think, uh, really, the Lord wants that for us? Uh, if you think of John 15, uh, where he tells us straight out, uh, you need the joy that I could provide, and the way that that would happen is if you abide in me. So the answer is yes. The Lord wants us to have his joy. He does not want us to be professional warriors. Uh, he does not want us to be those who constantly cope with depression. He wants our rest to be in him. And I find that to be of great encouragement. Again, reminding them uh, regarding their interpersonal relationships in the assembly, he says in verse 5, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. He wants us to treat each other kindly and gently. He says, the Lord is near or at hand, meaning the Lord will return at any time now. It is imminent. Nothing 
prevents the Lord from returning even now uh, during this particular time in the, the study of his word. And I would actually uh, consider that a great preference. I would enjoy the Lord returning right now. Then comes this exhortation uh, that many of us say to ourselves, well, that's impossible. And so we just set it aside and imagine uh, these are one of the small things that we intend not to keep, and yet it is an important thing that he asks us to do. He says in verse 6, be anxious for nothing. In other words, in vernacular, we would just say, don't worry about anything as an alternative, he says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Some of us might think, well, worry isn't really a sin, is it? What's so bad about worry? Isn't worry true of every single one of us? Aren't we constantly worried about some things? Well, it somewhat depends on our personalities. There's some happy-go-lucky people that you wish had a little bit more worry about them, that they were concerned more about their future. As a college professor, I had uh, some students that I felt just didn't pay enough attention uh, to their studies. Uh, one particular time in which it was uh, final exams time and they should have been studying. I went down to the student center, was walking through, noticed what was on television, and it was a skateboarding championship. And I looked across the guys that were watching it, and every single one of them really needed to study a lot harder. And I thought, like, skateboarding, not doing so well in school. I had a sort of a stereotypical thought in my mind as to what they were thinking about when they should have been studying. So there is some sense in which you want to have an, a rightful concern that things happen well, but there's a place beyond which we should not go that he describes as anxiety, as worry. And you might say, well, where's that line of demarcation where uh, I have responsibilities that I must care for, and when does it become worry? Worry is assuming responsibility that God never intended you to have. And so worry is at the point where you have stopped trusting in God and started trusting in yourself. It's where you think you can solve the problem and you leave God out of it. I tend to fall asleep at uh, the moment uh, my head hits the pillow. My wife is the opposite. She lays her head on the pillow, and then in her mind, she goes back through the day and analyzes all the things that happened during the day. And then when she's done with the day, then she goes on to tomorrow, and she analyzes everything that will be happening tomorrow. Meanwhile, I'm snoring and disturbing her concentration. She woke me up at midnight uh, one night to tell me that Andrew, our youngest, still wasn't home. Uh, this is like a year or so ago. Uh, he's 18, I think, right now. So he must have been 17 or so at this point. And he had permission to be out. Uh, he and a friend of his uh, were out skating in a parking lot at the local uh, uh, mall area uh, in front of a Target store uh, and uh, just skating in the parking lot uh, completely innocently. Uh, and uh, I had dropped him off because he didn't have a car yet, 
and he was going to catch a ride home with his friend, and he'd not arrived home, and it was midnight now, and Carol was worrying him. So she woke me up and said, do something. Well, uh, coming to, I, I thought like, well, the thing to do is to telephone him, and I call him. He doesn't answer. I text him. He doesn't answer. Uh, I use find friends on my phone, which should locate the phone for me. It doesn't go through. And I'm thinking like, okay, now I'm worried. And so I got in the car, had to get dressed, got in the car, drove over there. It's about three miles away. And there he was right in the same spot that he said he would be. I picked him up and I said, you know, uh, you could call if you wanted us not to worry. And he said, well, my phone is dead. He'd actually let the battery go down. That's why nothing worked. He wasn't being bad at all. Uh, and the reason uh, he had not gotten a ride home yet is because his friend was still there, the one who was going to give him the ride home. There was nothing to worry about at all. Everything was completely innocent. But many times, just out of fear for what will happen, uh, we eat ourselves alive with anxiety. And the Lord says what we're to do instead of trying to solve a problem that's insoluble, He says, in everything, that means small things. He is loving enough as a dear father of ours to want to know even the small things. Or big things, as the creator God, there's nothing really too big for us to give to him. He says, in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Prayer is talking to God. Many people say, well, I don't know how to pray. And I say, do you know how to talk? And you're talking to me right now. That's what it's like. You're talking to God as a real person because he is a real person. He's the person who created you. He knows you. He loves you. It's talking to God. Prayer is largely asking for things. Uh, you might find that unusual, but I invite you to study New Testament prayer, and you'll find that prayer is a lot about asking things. Now, it's not so much about asking for things for yourself to bring yourself more comfort. In fact, you'll find next to none of that in the scripture. Prayer is mostly praying for other people, for their needs. And it's not so much for physical needs. We're constantly praying for people's illnesses. It's actually mostly about spiritual development. It's praying for other people's needs for their spiritual development. And consequently, you pray for me, and I hope you will, for my spiritual development, we uphold each other in prayer. But there's nothing wrong, in fact, we're exhorted here, to take what had been a worry for us and to give it over to the Lord. And he piles together a bunch of synonyms. He uses the general word for prayer. Supplication is based on the root word for desire, meaning to actually express our desires to God. There's nothing wrong with that. To add in thanksgiving, meaning that we're thanking him in advance for how he will answer this. The answer could be yes immediately, it could be yes a little later, it could be not quite yet, it could be no, it could be that's wrong for you, there could be a variety of answers, but we thank him in advance for how it is he'll answer, and yet we make our requests to him. He says in return, if we transfer trust from ourselves trying to solve what's worrying ourselves, over to him, he rewards us with peace. And he says the peace that he can give us is the peace that surpasses comprehension, mostly in the way that it's better than anything we could think of 
It's not so much that it's uh, uh, inconceivable as it is superior to anything that we would have possibly done. And he, in fact, says he sets up a garrison around our hearts and our minds, protecting us from attack. Now, I find uh, when I go to sleep at night, I sleep very well until 3 a.m., and then I wake up, and then I have a hard time going back to sleep. And whereas during the daytime, I seem to have my defenses up pretty well, at 3 in the morning, for some reason, my defenses are down, and even the smallest things cause me concern. Uh, so if I'm awake at 3 in the morning and can't go back to sleep, I find myself turning to the Lord in prayer, I memorize scripture, I quote scripture, I pray about the various things that are going on in my life, and the Lord does replace the worry with peace. I can testify to you that it's true. Now, sometimes I'll even open the scripture and read the scripture and have great enjoyment in the wee hours of the morning of studying the word. But just like we change channels when we are not happy with what we're seeing, we want to see something else, and our mind changes along with the channel. Or if we don't like the music that we're hearing on the radio, we change the station, and immediately our, our mind aligns with the new information that's coming to us. He asks us to take every thought captive and change how we're thinking by releasing the concern over to him and allowing him to bear that burden for us. He says, cast your cares upon him because he cares for us. In many ways, you see here uh, <clears throat> that we must learn that there are times at which we can't solve it and the only person who can solve it is him. And he asks us to give it over to him. As a young college student, a freshman, uh, my uh, friend Carol, who's now my wife, uh, called me from a payphone. Back then, there were no cell phones. We were in college back in the dark ages. She called me from a payphone from a local community college saying, I'm out of class. This is a night class that got out after 10 o'clock at night. I'm walking from my class to my car, and a man is following me. I've been going up and down different hallways. I keep making turns. He keeps following me. I think he's going to try to attack me when I get outside in the dark. I didn't even own a car. Uh, back then, freshmen went to college without cars. Again, it was the dark ages. And all I had was this phone that I was talking to her on. There was no way I could jump in the car and run over there and rescue her. I said, what I will do is I'll pray with you on the phone, and the moment I get off the phone, I'll get the guys together here on our dorm floor together, and we will pray for you for God to protect you. I realized... I can't reach out and do anything. The only thing I can do is turn to God in prayer. And that's actually a lesson that we need to learn over and over and over again in life. I can't do this. I need you, so I give it to you. And she was perfectly fine. She made it to the car safely, came home safely. The Lord answered our prayers just as we had asked. Verse 8 then enters into a paragraph in which he says, you need to place a filter over the thoughts that present themselves to your mind. You are not to think along with whatever thought pops into your mind, but you are to filter your thoughts. 
And you may recall that there was actually some disunity in this church, and some people were actually thinking ill of the other or thinking uh, they were more important than other people. But listen to these filters. He says in verse 8, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. So if we have bad thoughts towards someone else and we begin to feel anger towards that person or hate towards that person uh, or frustration towards that person, we are to give it over to the Lord. And in fact, we're not to entertain those thoughts and dwell on them and let them eat us alive. We're to hand it over to the Lord in prayer. And we are to control how we think. Now, many of us would say to ourselves, I can't possibly control what I think. I just think whatever I think and things pop into my mind and I start thinking about those thoughts. Well, did you remember when Jesus was teaching people about how by the Spirit's control we can hold ourselves to a very high standard. He says, you've heard it said in the law, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say to you, do not even lust after a woman in your heart. Now, it's not that, uh, say for men, for example, the thought never occurs to them, but it is true that men then have a choice as to what would happen with the thought that occurs to them. And what they're to do is to reject that thought out of hand as sin and say instead, I will replace that thought with righteous ones regarding what the scripture says is true. And you'll see the very first filter that he places here in verse 8 is what is true, not rumors, uh, not innuendos, not suppositions, but what is true what is honorable, what is right, what is pure, what is lovely. Can you see how we would actually get along a lot better with each other if we would not entertain bad thoughts about each other, but unless they were absolutely true and we had something to do with the solution, if it was just rumor, we would reject it. He says in verse 9, the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. One of the beautiful things about the Apostle Paul, he was comfortable enough to say, follow me as I follow Christ. And we could wish that we could say that to those who were discipling, uh, that our lives are so above board that if you followed me, you'd find yourself following Christ because Christ is the king of my life and I seek to emulate him in all that I do. Uh, Paul says, do what I do. And I find it's a whole lot easier to follow a person who I can see making real life decisions around me uh, than it is for me to try to imagine, well, what should I do? And so I seek wise counsel from other mature believers. I go and ask people, what do you think about this? Can you help me process this? Can you help me think through this situation? Can you help me think of wise solutions? What would the scripture say about these things? And he says, the God of peace will be with you. Then he turns to the occasion that prompted the writing of this epistle. Uh, Paul is writing from Roman imprisonment. 
And it's been 10 years since he first founded the Philippian church. He had visited them once since the founding, five years earlier. And now he is writing this letter because they have sent him a gift of financial support while he was in prison. He has been allowed to rent private quarters. He's in a sense under house arrest. He has already had his arraignment and pretrial hearing in which he has given uh, an initial uh, point of view as to why he continues to preach the gospel even though he was commanded not to. And now he's awaiting the official trial, which will be before Caesar, who will adjudicate his case. He's a Roman citizen, and he's appealed to Caesar, and he'll uh, let Caesar decide whether he'll be executed or released. In the meantime, he's in rented quarters, and the money sent to him actually aids him in paying the rent he needs for these quarters. So he writes back to the Philippians to thank them for the gift that they sent. They've been a most generous assembly in helping him throughout these last 10 years. I'm reading from verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. And what he means by this is they've been very faithful, but they're not well off. They, in fact, at times, don't even have enough money to care for themselves. And so there have been times in which they have not been able to support him. He says, not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And then back to the issue at hand, he says, Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. He thanks them for the gift, but he's hinting he has enough. They don't need to send more. Uh, he has everything he needs. And frankly, his lifestyle hasn't been one of steady income being a cross-cultural pioneer missionary planting churches across Asia and now Europe, uh, he has had an ebb and flow in financial support. And so his happiness has not been tied to the comfort of a steady income. For us as Americans, we can hardly imagine such a thing. We would say to ourselves, like, don't you drive yourself crazy with worry, wondering where will my next meal come from? You know, how will I prepare uh, for my future? Uh, what level of security do I have? We as Americans are so careful to think ahead and provide for ourselves to hear him say, I can trust the Lord to provide for me, is a revelation that should give us some level of peace to say, you mean you can do that? You can trust the Lord to provide for your needs even when you don't have the right digits in your checking account and you're not sure exactly how you're going to pay your bills? Listen to him. He says, not that I speak from want. It reminds me of Psalm 23, where the Lord is my shepherd and consequently I shall not want because he provides for me. You know, he leads us to the green grass and the pastures that will feed us. He leads us beside the still waters where we'll drink. He restores our soul. He says, therefore, I don't have to want. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. He has cast himself wholly upon the Lord, 
and is leaning on the Lord as the servant of the Lord for the Lord to give him what he needs. Now, I would have thought with such admirable faith, God would make it easy on him and keep him in steady supply of everything he needed. Instead, he says, I know how to get along with humble means, and I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and, did you hear this? And going hungry. Carol and I have been tight from time to time where we were wondering, like, how are we going to pay our bills? But we have never gone hungry. Never have we gone hungry. There was one time where we had bills that we needed to pay, and we didn't have the income to pay it. And we went to the penny jar in the closet. Uh, the first one was a peanut butter jar, and it had gotten filled up. The second one was a peanut butter jar, and it had gotten filled up. And then the next one was a gallon-sized pickle jar. And we just, you know, when you have change in your pocket and you don't know what to do with it, we would just put it in the jar. We had the big jar and the two small jars, and the bank had this fancy machine where you just pour it in and it spins it around and counts it all for you, rejects the buttons and other little things that fell in the jar as well. And this is absolutely shocking. Those three jars, $425. I can agree with the Apostle Paul where you thought for a moment there you might be going hungry, but no, he provides everything you need as you need it, and you have trust in him whether you know where it's coming from or not. He says, my level of contentment is not necessarily always having abundance. I can be content even when I am suffering need. And you'd say, why do that to your apostle if you like him so much? And the answer is because it's healthy for us. And the reason is this is the same reason with the worry. You'd say, well, why is God so rough on us that he places us in situations where we could worry? So that we stop trusting in ourselves and so that we transfer trust to him. Again, what's the definition of worry? What's the line of demarcation past personal responsibility and when it becomes sin? It's when you cling to it yourself and try to solve it on your own and you leave God out of it. Give it to God. May your trust be in Him and allow Him to give you the peace you need, even in financial stress. Then he says in verse 15, You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. He moved from the north to the south, heading towards Corinth, and then spent uh, three years in Corinth. Uh, they were a very needy church and a very important church, one of the largest, most important, influential cities in the entire empire. And so he spent a long time there. But he says, I noticed there were times at which you couldn't support me, but you were so faithful. And frankly, it made it possible for me to concentrate on serving the Lord and not having to earn my own way. When he got down to Corinth, he refused to take any gifts from the Corinthians, 
they were so immature, he basically said, you'll think you're in some way contributing to your salvation. I'm not taking anything from you. And he'll even at one point say, I robbed other churches to serve you. The robbing other churches is being supported by Philippi. Well, I am with you as a wealthy church taking nothing from you. And in fact, there was a time when he was not receiving income and he actually had to go back to sewing tents together, which was his original occupation. Uh, he met some very wonderful people through sewing tents in that trade. But he says, I'd rather work day and night than become a burden on anyone or anyone think that I'm trying to abuse them by taking money from them in a way in which they would not generously share and not want to contribute to my support. He says, verse 17, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. My 20-year-old son is studying accounting right now, and it's uh, very interesting to watch him discover something new and, and come try it out on me and tell me about it. So he's studying tax, for example, and he came to me and says, Dad, did you know you can take a deduction for your home office? And I said, I know about deductions for home offices, but I wouldn't dare take a deduction because I don't use that solely only for that purpose. I do a lot of things in my office, and frankly, it's an invitation for an audit, and I don't want to be audited, so no. And he goes, but dad, you have a right to take it. And I said, well, it's very complicated, son, but I've been advised by a CPA, don't take that deduction. Listen to this creative explanation as to how when you give money away, a profit increases to your account. Because the sleight of hand here is that he's talking about giving physical funds and receiving back spiritual blessing. You, in a sense, are investing in people for God's kingdom, and he blesses you with spiritual reward. He says, even more so than the necessary funds I need to live and the funds that you are giving to me that makes it possible for me to be full-time in the Christian work, even more than that, the thing that blesses my heart the most is what this generosity has done to you. Early in my life, uh, I was only, uh, I think, a junior in high school. Uh, I realized this for the first time myself, uh, when a young man, 16 years of age, had shown up at our church. He had gone to a judge and been emancipated uh, from his parents. They had uh, been such derelict of parents that uh, the judge said, no, you're better on your own. And he traveled clear from the East Coast out to the West Coast. And unfortunately, he was living in parks, sleeping on park benches, eating out of the trash. And, and uh, uh, he was a young, immature believer. He came to our church, and we started uh, helping him uh, get well-established. And so he slept in some of our homes for a while. We helped him get a job, get some education, get uh, uh, squared away. And I asked him, are you coming to summer camp uh, this summer? And he says, no, I can't afford to do that. And I looked in my wallet, and I had a $20 bill back in those days, in the dark ages. That was a lot of money. And I said, if I gave you this $20, do you think you'd be able to come? Camp costs a lot less back then. And he said, I think I could. And so I gave him the $20. We went to uh, the Christian camp together. And at the end of the week, we had uh, 
a victory circle kind of fire uh, where people stand up and give testimonies as to how the Lord has worked in their life this week. And he stood up and gave his testimony of how the Lord had uh, really gotten a hold of his heart and, and really made significant spiritual progress in his life. And I was so blessed. I said to myself, you know, and I was only 17, I said, this is the best $20 I have ever spent. See, in some ways, you feel like you've lost it when you've spent it. But in this creative accounting that we see here as Paul describes it, I seek for the profit which increases to your account. The profit comes back to where you say, I don't miss that at all. That was the best investment I ever made. To send it on ahead, investing in the kingdom of heaven, investing in people. People live forever. And to invest in people and seeing how God uh, can use those funds uh, to bless them spiritually is of great encouragement to all of us. Then in verse 18, he says, But I've received everything in full. I have an abundance. I'm amply supplied. I think these words are particularly helpful uh, to uh, the Philippians because he wants to thank them profusely for their gift, but basically say, I don't think you should be sending any more. I, I think that you're that tight that, that you probably should keep the rest for yourselves to live on. And so he says, I have what I need. I, th I think I'm on every possible mailing list of uh, various Christian organizations, and I re receive letters, especially at Christmas time, and no one has ever said in any of those letters, don't send any money, we have everything we need. We are amply supplied, the Lord has blessed us. I don't think I've ever received such a letter. Uh, but there is the Apostle Paul writing back to the Philippians saying, the Lord is caring for me. Uh, I have received from Epaphroditus what you sent. Epaphroditus actually hand-carried the financial gift to them. It's a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. He's saying that a gift of money can be a spiritual sacrifice. This morning, reference was made uh, to the breaking of bread in which we were giving sacrifices that consisted of the praise of our lips that we can actually make a sacrifice by speaking up in worship. Here he says that giving gifts to the Lord's work is a sacrifice that's well acceptable to the Lord and sends to him a fragrant aroma, uh, a blessing uh, to God. And then he says something that is of great comfort to us. He says... And my God will supply all your needs in accordance with, uh, the term actually means in proportion to, his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He is saying that the riches that he has can meet every one of our needs. And he says, you can't outgive me. When a farmer places seed in the ground, he's making an investment. 
rather than using the seed for something else, such as eating or feeding uh, the animals, he places it into the ground and hopes that it will grow. I stayed in the home of an Iowa corn farmer uh, right after he had planted, and his little plants were up about an inch and a half, and there was hail that was uh, predicted, and I was saying, what happens if it hails? And he says, if the hail comes and hits those little sprouts, it will kill them. And that would be that. We'd have to replant. And I said, well, how much seed do you have in the ground? And he said, $30,000 worth. And I said, you must really pray during the stormy season when your crop is so vulnerable to the hail. And he says, yes, I pray. You see, if we invest in God's work, he says that he's able to pay us back Think of the farmer, once he has a harvest, he has an abundance of seed, enough seed to sell, enough seed to feed all his animals, seed to feed himself. He has everything he needs, and he has seed left over to plant again. A good harvest means he has way more than he needs. And God says, as you invest, I am able to replace your investment so that you can give again. He says... My God will supply all your needs in proportion to, in accordance with, His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And hence we have said that God's work done God's way will not lack God's supply. And we wonder at times, then why does He make it so rough on us? Why does He scare us? Why does He prevent us from feeling so comfortable of having everything we need in advance? It's the same answer that we've been hearing throughout the entire chapter because He doesn't want us to trust in ourselves and He wants us to continuously transfer trust from ourselves to Him. He wants us to believe him and trust him and work our way through the having abundance, having need, the ebb and flow without worry. Because worry is assuming responsibility God never intended us to have. I studied at Dallas Theological Seminary and one of the favorite stories of uh, the old timers at Dallas is the time coming uh, out of the Depression in which uh, they owed so much money that it was possible the property would be repossessed. And it was down to where the bank said, you need to come up with $10,000 worth of payment or we will repossess now. And it was hard to come up with money at, at that time uh, when the economy uh, was so bad. So Lewisbury Chafer, the president and founder of uh, the seminary there, uh, called together his inner circle of friends, board members and the like, into his office and said, we're going to pray all night. Uh, and uh, Harry Ironside uh, was one of the board members of Dallas. You may know him as uh, one of the brethren. Uh, he was in the room that night. Uh, and they prayed throughout the night didn't stop praying, didn't sleep, just kept praying all the way through the night. And as <clears throat> the hours passed, their prayers became more and more focused and more and more earnest and more down to earth. And if you've read any of Harry Ironside's commentaries, you know that, that he is a very down to earth, say it as it is kind of person. 
And so in the wee hours of the morning, Harry Ironside prays, and this is the quote, you own the cattle on a thousand hills. Sell some and give us the money. <laughs> well, uh, at 8 o'clock in the morning when it was time to open the office, Dewey Duncan, uh, the secretary uh, for the president, uh, came in and in came uh, a tall drink of water is what they call him in Texas. A, a tall cowboy, cowboy hat and all boots and everything came in with a check for $10,000. He said, I sold some cattle, and I want to give you the proceeds. So Dewey Duncan's knocking on the door of the inner office where the men are praying, and they were scared. They thought it was the bank coming with papers to repossess. And so they wouldn't come to the door, and they kept praying earnestly. And Dewey Duncan continues to knock on the door and call out, you know, open up, open up. Finally, they opened up. And they presented the check and paid it to the bank and uh, were out of trouble. And they said to themselves, see, why do we worry? God is capable of meeting our needs. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever." and ever. Amen. Oh, brothers and sisters, as we think of this new year coming and make resolutions for ourselves, let's make a resolution not to worry, but instead to pray, to give our needs over to him and to thank him in advance for whatever answer he'll give us. And let's make a resolution regarding the proper use of our finances. And let's allow God to use us to honor him in the way in which we use our funds. May our trust be fully and wholly in him. And may he find us faithful and reward us as he has promised. Will you pray with me? Oh, Father, I ask on behalf of all of us uh, that we would live out what this passage teaches us. It began by exhorting us to rejoice, not to worry but to rejoice because the return of your son is near. And we long for his return. We would enjoy it even tonight. And Father, we thank you, thank you for the truths of your word that we have seen tonight. Help us not to trust in ourselves, but to trust in you. And when we find ourselves worrying again, to transfer trust back to you. Regarding our financial concerns, we pray once again that you would meet our needs as you have promised, as we trust you. May we be wise as we steward these funds that you have given to us. And may we honor you in the way in which we spend them. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.